We are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a, a really interesting guest today. We are with Joshua Tate, who is a PhD candidate in the History Department at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, working on the on the history of American conservative movement. So, hi, Joshua. And first of all, let's talk about how do you became interested in in American history, and then in in the history of American conservatism. Hey, Camilo, thank you for having me. Um, how did I get interested in American history? Well, I mean, uh, American history is so important, I think, to understand the world even uh, now, but, but over the last, I don't know, 100 years at least. So um, it was really, really easy for me to become fascinated by that. And uh, in particular, when I was at university, my undergraduate, I had a professor who you know, had a knack for really making the, the American founding come alive. And uh, that was, in some ways, my, my entree to American history. Um, how I got onto studying the conservative movement or conservatism in general, well, um, that was mostly in my honors year. So toward the end of my undergraduate career, I had to do a research paper, and um, the professor that I was being supervised by suggested I write something about a, a contemporary guy a professor at Princeton named Robert George, Robert P. George, um, who I'd never heard of, but now is um, is quite a big deal, both an intellectual entrepreneur, but also like a network entrepreneur, um, someone who I think occupies an interesting place then and, and now in the conservative movement. But I started uh, looking at his career and looking at his writings and um, realized that he was doing for the 21st century, what other conservative intellectuals had done beforehand, and that he was part of a longer tradition of of conservative intellectuals connecting religious belief and uh, conservative politics with a broader tradition of of a conservative interpretation of of American history and, and American politics. And I fell down a rabbit hole of following that sort of trajectory studying uh, Robert P. George and then expanding out to, to further uh, more conservative intellectuals and then kind of the, the movement or the ideology in general. So it's it's been ever-expanding concentric circles of, of conservative thought ever since ever since that moment. That's, that's interesting. I mean, you're, you're from New Zealand, right? <laughs> that's right. I am from New Zealand. Um, and... Uh, People often ask me, you know, how did I get into American history because I'm a New Zealander, uh, which is strange because, you know, I have I have colleagues at the University of North Carolina who study French history and Russian history, <laughs> and uh, and they're all Americans, and no one seems to worry about that. It's just yeah. how could it possibly be that a foreigner is interested in in American history? But um, as I said at the start, it's it's for for people for many people outside the United States. The United States is the country that that so dominates the, the the global landscape that it's hard to um, hard to avoid it. And um, you know, in New Zealand, our our pop culture and our political culture isn't only shaped by the United States, but it's certainly informed by it heavily. So you know, when I was younger, um, when I was at university, it was hard to hard to miss. So it wasn't. Um, wasn't a strange thing for me to get into American politics, American political history. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm Peruvian, and, and the only uh, Peruvian I know that, that is doing his PhD in a non 
Native American history is, is one that is doing in Southeast uh, Asian history. And to be honest, okay. I, I don't know any Peruvian that has done a graduate uh, a degree in, 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 uh, in American history, which is very curious because uh, the U.S. is featuring a lot of... Uh, process that happened in, 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 in Peruvian history. And it's very curious. There are very few pieces even about the relationships between Peru and the U.S. And it's very curious. And I think it, it, it has to deal with, I guess, not only Peru, but in Latin America, that uh, particularly in years before, it was very difficult to, to get uh, passports, not only to, to go to, to the U.S., but to, to go to our places and to do, uh, a, a particular for historians, to do our archival kind of work and and that mm -hmm. is something that, that has complicated the um the for example if i wanted to 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 do australian history i i mm -hmm. will have to first go to the to chile because uh, australia don't doesn't have an embassy here in, in peru and, and, <laughs> right. and yeah so it's kind of a bureaucratic uh, and 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 also the people that want to do british history have to go to colombia to, to process the visa there so yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a little bit uh, complex. Yeah, and, and there are people <laughs> oh, that, that that do don't necessarily to study history, but that want to study overseas. So they have to 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 travel to other countries in 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 Latin America that have visas of, of other countries, and and to to the process is much longer, I, I guess, in Latin America, which is kind of complex in many ways. Oh sure, yeah, I bet it sounds like I had. I thought I had trouble with my my visas. I had to um, travel up and down New Zealand to figure out to to get my visa sorted. Um, and whenever I left the United States, I would have to go to one specific city, which is not where my family lived, and it's in New Zealand, and it's not where my hometown was. Um, so I would have to, and it was on a different island. So I would have to, you know, change islands to sort my visa out, so I could go back to the United States, where I was obviously taking classes or doing archival work and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, I sympathize with the, with the hassle there. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, um, and that is very curious. But I was wondering, and how do you 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 already mentioned that 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 you that your interest in 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 American conservatism developed as as an undergraduate. So that was kind of the reason why you decided to to go to I guess to to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill that kind of have uh, uh, your advisor kind of works in, in the topics near you relatively I think. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 more or less right. I was um, I knew that I wanted to do graduate work in history, and I knew that I wanted to study conservatism. Uh, so I started looking out for uh, for academics who were working in that field, and uh, universities that had strong U.S. history programs and had strong um, backgrounds in in history. And um, I, I kept seeing the University of North Carolina partly because its press would keep coming up in the books that I would read, and I would you know published by the University of North Carolina Press, and I was, I didn't realize at that stage that it was, you know, the press was quite distinct from the, the department, the history department, <laughs> but, um, but so I, you know, I had that on my mind, and, uh, and um, UNC had and has great professors, uh, especially ones working on um, 
American history and American conservatism kind of writ large. Uh, so I, I applied particularly to work with um, Benjamin Waterhouse, who works on uh, like right-wing lobbying, particularly in the later 20th century. And also another professor there that I was that I really admire, uh, Molly Worthen, who writes about conservative evangelicals. So uh, Professor Waterhouse, Ben Waterhouse, um, has that kind of hard-nosed business uh, institutional approach, and Molly Worthen has uh, more of an intellectual history approach. And between the, I sort of try and situate myself between the two. I probably lean towards the intellectual history side of things, but. Um, Ben Waterhouse tries to keep me grounded and, and explain how these ideas were uh, developed in institutions and, and transferred through institutions and so on. Yeah, I mean, you studying the, the history of American conservatism, there is a, a lot of overlap with, with the libertarian movement. I, to, to a certain point, I mean, there, there are elements of the libertarian movement that, that were too idiosyncratic to ever being part of... of, of the conservative movement, but yeah, but uh, maybe even there's still some. Um, to my mind, it comes that that Dana Rodenbacher, the 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 former um, speechwriter of, of Ronald Reagan and, and, and former congressman, also was for a while a, a kind of free market anarchist, a, a friend mm -hmm. of Samuel Rodenbacher. But but in general, I, I mean, it it has kind of this. Uh, so what we want to talk that is kind of this relationship between conservative and, and, and business so what what are you your your thesis kind of working in, in, in that regard because you're trying to, to merge the, the interest between economic and intellectual history um well <clears throat> i have i have a bunch of of overlapping interests my my dissertation work is mostly on conservative intellectuals looking at the American past at what I'm calling the American political tradition and trying to place themselves within it and use this history of the United States uh, as, as part of the justification for 20th and 21st century, mostly 20th century conservative politics. Um, recently, I wrote something for the National Interest where I uh, looked at um, this awkward relationship between um, between free market economics and what I, the very earliest stages of what I'm talk, calling like conscious conservative uh, conscious conservatism in the in the middle of the 20th century, um, the argument is essentially that in the middle of the the 20th century in the 50s, there was a, a group of um, historians and political scientists who tried to make conservatism into a valid and useful ideology for mid-20th century America. And uh, the argument was that they had a much more ambivalent relationship with free market economics than we now associate with conservatism. And so I think, you know, the quirk or the irony I was tracing in that piece was that the people, the reason that we call the right, or one of the reasons that the right embraced the term conservatism was because of these thinkers, but these thinkers um, saw themselves as having quite a distance from what we now associate with with cons uh, conservatism today, especially the economic side of things. And a number of the debates that we see today at the moment, um, in the piece I talked about Tucker Carlson uh, going on Fox and 
criticizing the free market, uh, which was, I think, quite a surprising uh, move at the time. Uh, but then more recently, we've seen um, an argument among pundits between uh, Saurabh Amari, who is this Catholic convert and um, increasingly populist critic of conservatism from the right, uh, and David French, who is an evangelical and kind of straightforward, what we would call a fusionist conservative. And that's in the last couple of weeks really kind of um, exploded as a, as a argument about what conservatism ought to be or what the right in America ought to be in the future vis-a-vis uh, -vis economics, vis-a-vis -vis liberalism and uh, the United States itself. So I was in this national interest piece, I was looking at some of the origins of that tension between conservatism, what it means to have um, a political ideology and order based on tradition and organicism and um, hierarchy versus free market economics. And I suggested that there was a tension that was papered over for a long time, um, but it's beginning to come back into view, partly because of the Trump election and partly before that, uh, due to the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, I think that, that it's very, it's a very interesting issue. I think that, that being a Peruvian, for example, I, I identify <laughs> myself as a libertarian, but people are surprised that I uh, generally lean to the left in the Peruvian context, or in many ways, even in other contexts, but I mean, it's. It, I even worked for a while in, in, in the in a foundation funded by by, by the corporate mainly because a lot of <laughs> sure. the foundations are funded by by the corporate. And and I noticed that that it's true. I mean, it's it's true that there you find the people you find in the in the in the libertarian movement tend to be more to the right. But I think that you find that there are people, even the ones that identify as somewhat conservative have much uh, liberal positions on many issues that mm -hmm. people used to think so there are uh, pro-choice conservatives and particularly in the libertarian war and uh, sure yeah. and 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 it's a very interesting issue i think i think that there is a kind of of, uh, of an idea that 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 libertarianism and conservatism are the same, and I think that's kind of sad because there are very two different kind of, of ideologies. I was yesterday the guest in a in a Marxist podcast, and I think I, I have a lot of, of things in common, despite having worked by <laughs> in a foundation of, funded by the Koch brothers with Marxist socialists, for example. And mm -hmm. and I think even if one uh, reads the the writings of, of people like Moro Rothbard, particularly in the in the in the sixties, one one sees that 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 it was not just the so-called left libertarian scene that kind of logic that that there were a kind of, of political realignment that could have worked in if, if some conditions were kind of. This it, is uh, this is Murray Rothbard yeah. and his alliance with the New Left. Yeah, and I think that that still to this day you will find even in the uh, I mean the the. Part of the more liberal left has attacked a lot of elements of, of, of the of the libertarian movement, but but I think that there are. I wasn't the only one. I think, and I am still not the only one in the libertarian movement that leans toward the left, at, at least to some degree. And and I think, for example, you find writers like Chris Walker of, of Reason Magazine, who, who for example, 
So it's a, a lot in Bolivia is a kind of example of radical mar markets and, and decentralism. And, and, and obviously, El Alto is in, in no way a, a model for for conservative because it's, it's, it's literally a, a one of the most chaotic cities in, in, in Latin America. But it's 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 what unleash free markets are, and and I think that kind of deals with 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 the with the kind of of your reflection about the the issue of order that the the idea of of order in the in the conservative movement is very strong. I, I don't think that that is as strong for 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 many libertarians, and I think that 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 tension is very 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 strong, and it has become developed in in the mainly in the last years, but particularly in the last days. With you mentioned the the Sobramani piece in in first things, I, mm -hmm. I think it was. Mm -hmm kind of a, a very interesting kind of uh, development because I think it's 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 being honest about uh, an alliance that, that it's not just today that it's being questioned. I mean, right. I think Pat Buchanan comes to my mind as one of the great uh, critics of that alliance, even if he still had some relationship with, with libertarians to a certain degree. but. The, the alliance was different. It wasn't the classic fusionism. It was a, a very different kind of alliance. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think there is a, a very deep tension, and it's papered over by the idea of fusionism, this idea that became popular in conservative intellectual circles in the, in the 1960s. It's usually associated with this guy named Frank Mayer, who was a... Um, started as a Marxist, became a libertarian, although he had very, you know, he was kind of traditionalist in, in his personal life. Uh, he never associated with, or he rarely associated with traditionalism um, as a political structure. He was mostly associated with libertarianism, but he um, is credited with, with developing this idea of fusionism. And I think that the key idea of fusionism is that obviously the, end of society is virtue but or or you know the good human flourishing but the only way that we can achieve it is through freedom virtue cannot be coerced um, it has to be freely chosen and therefore uh, political society must be ordered around uh, liberty and particularly economic liberty because well since liberty is indivisible in the argument and so that that became the the fusionist I guess, compromise. Yes, as conservatives, they said, we're going to focus on virtue, but politically that has to come from liberty. That became the organizing kind of idea. And it's the argument of the, the piece I wrote in The National Interest is essentially that that was a compromise in which the traditionalists basically um, gave up their position uh, to the libertarian position. They said, yeah, let's focus on libertarian policy goals. Let's focus on libertarian um, or libertarian informed political goals. Um, and we will make, you know, culture, we'll, we'll make our ideas, we'll make um, hierarchy and uh, social order and Christian or Judeo-Christian tradition, we'll make those cultural issues. And that, that became the grand bargain where social conservatives essentially worked for um, libertarian policy goals, and I guess 
the the reciprocal expectation was that libertarians would support or you know conservative the the grand alliance conservative movement would would fight for um you know traditional social values and mores and it, it didn't really play out that way for a lot of reasons and so the argument is that traditionalists ended up becoming allies for libertarians without necessarily getting as much in return um and uh that i think they're the people like tucker carlson people like sora bomari uh and then we could look at people like um patrick denine as well at notre dame are beginning to rebel against that alliance or saying what are social conservatives what are traditionalists what are I don't know, quote unquote, true con conservatives getting out of this alliance. Perhaps it's time to break away from libertarianism, which they see as as a kind of liberalism, um, and a kind uh, and and so breaking away from that uh, is is possibly the direction that they are going to to go. But I think it's in the air. It's up for up for debate. Yeah, I mean, the one of the other people that has been arguing for that is Daniel McCarty, and Daniel McCarty worked in the campaign of of, uh, of Ron Paul, and he was the editor of the American Conservative. Now I think he's the editor mm -hmm. of of Asia, another conservative publication, and it's very interesting. I think I think Daniel is someone that that has some libertarian instincts, but adapts to the time, and I think that seeing Trumpism as it is. Um, it, it, it was kind of a, a, a shift in, 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 the, in the minds of many in the, in the, the conservative mm -hmm. movement. And I think it, it kind of expressed a lot of, 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 of the issues that, that maybe are playing because some of the articles that I, that I hear is basically saying uh, uh, social conservative played to the libertarian game, now, now it's time of libertarians to play to the social conservative game, but some, for what I get, are you know like basically saying I don't care what libertarians do, and and it's very curious because I am not sure, and it's very difficult to know what is the size of the libertarian movement in, in the U.S. because or the or the social conservative movement, uh, yeah, frankly, it's it's, it's 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 true. Although I will imagine that the the Tea Party has some kind of more um, developed kind of statistics uh, in some regard, maybe the people that, that are part of the more grassroots movement. But with libertarians, it's very difficult because um, mm -hmm. it, I think particularly because in libertarianism is not that strange find people who, who identify as, as full-throne anarchists. And, and, and obviously, they are generally not very interested in, in electoral politics, so it's very difficult to, to have their data on, on anything. And, and it's very difficult to, to, to know what is going to be this equation, but I think that also one of the tensions that we haven't been talking is about neoconservatism. So neoconservatives were kind of distinct that from both uh, libertarians and, and, and social conservatives, and, and they were not necessarily uh, um, all equal. I think that some had some more social conservative views or have 
uh, a more kind of liberal views on, on, on social issues. Um, some had more uh, free market economics, uh, others were less. But but it's still one one could notice that 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 is still the more recent new conservatives had a, a much more center focus on foreign policy, and and that was kind mm -hmm. of their 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 the, the the issue from where they were mostly known, but. The, the triumph of Trump has made many wonder if the new conservatives is over and, 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 and what is the role that the new conservatives that are still in the equation of, of, of as mainly as intellectuals uh, uh, are going to play in the, in the, in the, in the, in the next years of, of, of conservatism. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Neoconservatives, I mean, they're a tricky bunch to nail down. Um, and uh, if we're talking about, you know, we, we can look at them in kind of generations. We've got that first generation of um, disillusioned liberals who, who sort of moved to the right in the 1970s. And then in the 1980s, you have those um, hawkish, Scoop Jackson-type cold warriors. And then in the 1990s and 2000s, we have those foreign policy-type folks, um, the war in Iraq uh, leaders, I suppose, in a sense. But today, um, you know, I made, a, I made a joking chart where I tried to figure out, you know, who was part of fourth-generation neoconservatism and, and what did it mean, what does it stand for. And uh, you're right, they're put in a very awkward position by Trump because they are, you know, they're still the more or less never Trump contingent. I think they're the strongest voices or among the strongest voices of that of that group. But what they actually represent, it's it's not entirely clear. Are they are they standing up for fusionism and like Reaganism style conservatism? Are they still carrying that flag? Maybe. Are they um Looking, for, are they are they trying to maintain like the liberal international order, sort of um, American hegemony, but an emphasis on human rights and democracy worldwide? In this instance, there's kind of a contrast with some of the social conservatives who look to places like Poland and Hungary as as potential um, as potential ex examples of socially conservative democratic nations with a Christian heritage. Uh, so you have neoconservatives who are very critical of that, that perspective. Um, or are neoconservatives just kind of um, besieged moderates trying to um, stand up for what they see as American principles against, you know, the socialism or quote-unquote socialism of the Democratic Party versus the populism of the Republican Party, um, and they're sort of politically homeless. You know, there's the the website The Bulwark, um, I think edited by Charlie Sykes, which is a very interesting website that that um, is one of the major, I guess, neoconservative fourth-generation neocon uh, outlets. And they post interesting stuff, including some surprisingly pro-Elizabeth Warren uh, <laughs> coverage, which yeah. which sort of gives you a sense of how politically um, homeless they are right now. Yeah, that's 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 curious and interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean the conservatives are really a, an interesting um, group and. And yeah, I mean, I was was going to ask you: Do you consider Elliot Abraham as a as a neoconservative? 
Uh, Elliot Abrams. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not, I'm not super, uh, clued up on his career, but you know, he's, he's John Pedoritz's brother-in-law. He's, um, I think closely associated with that second generation of neoconservatives who were the, um, who were the Scoop Jackson type cold warriors who moved to the right to the, to, um, the Reagan administration, um, particularly over how to prosecute the Cold War. So yeah, I would say he fits within that that ambit. He's certainly um, celebrated in the pages of Commentary Magazine and places like that. So I think, you know, if we treat neoconservatism as a, a series of interconnected um, literary and, and magazine and, and website spaces that sort of publish perspectives from interconnected groups, then yeah, absolutely. And what do you make about John Bolton? Because uh, he has characterized himself as a, as a realist, not as a as a as a neoconservative, but he is pretty mm -hmm. hawkish, and some argue that he is even more hawkish than some neoconservatives. Uh, yeah, I mean that's true. I would, I think he says he says about himself that he wakes up every day, or maybe this is what someone says about him that he wakes up every day and thinks, what can he do to uh, strengthen the United States position in the world. So I think, yeah, from that perspective, he is, he's less interested in um, the, the classic neoconservative foreign policy agenda, which is like a neo-Wilsonian um, liberalism with teeth sort of outlook and just a, a more straightforward assertion of American um, power and, and status and hegemony. But I think for his neoconservative supporters, they usually see a congruence between his assertion of American status and the advancement of liberalism with teeth, the advancement of um, human rights and democracy abroad and so on. So I think they see him as a fellow traveler, you know, the type of a type of person they can make common cause with, even if he doesn't necessarily identify with them. I think they identify with at least his proximate goals. And, and in Congress and in the Senate, what do you see as prominent conservative? To my mind, the only one that comes as, as more in the in the more quiet in the in the neoconservative like apparatus and, and kind of organically neoconservative is Lindsey Graham, but the other ones, even the hawkish ones, are, are, are very diverse in many issues. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you could even call Lindsey Graham neoconservative anymore. He's very much, very much in the Trump camp at the moment. Um, I think, you know, that's the question, right? How many divisions does Bill Crystal have? <laughs> and the answer, I, I'm not sure many, any at the moment. Um, but politics, I think if 2016 showed us anything, the election in 2016 showed us anything, it's that politics can shift very, very quickly. Um, and I, so at the moment, it seems like the, the Trump type of nationalist quasi-isolationists are, um, are in the saddle, but it could very easily shift. You know, if in, if in two or six years we're talking about Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or whomever, I don't know. 
uh, we could very quickly see a resurgence of neocon foreign policy, but um, that's entirely speculative. I think at the moment it's hard to see how many, uh, if any, um, people are there waving the neoconservative foreign policy flag. In some ways, maybe maybe Pompeo could be looked to, but in general, I would say um, President Trump is exerting a a strong pull towards him, whatever his his foreign policy ends happen to be. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's you, you it's it's true. I mean, the, I think the conservatives are trying to to seek models, and you mentioned Hungary and Poland, but but many argue that that, that both Hungary and Poland are, are kind of models that that are the antithesis of American conservatives because they are mm-hmm. uh, nationalists. They they have mm-hmm. uh, a strong uh, the 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 government has a strong role not only in, in in the economy but in many aspects of life and and in the case of Hungary particularly but but also in the case of of of, uh, of Poland one sees that that it's becoming more what what even Orban himself has uh, denominated. Uh, um, uh, illiberal democracy, uh, and that's right. Illiberal democracy. Yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like like it's a very shady path in many ways. It's a very kind of murky way. What what kind of uh, of because uh, there was an article some some time ago. I, I forgot the, the the name of the one the person who wrote it, but it says that basically the U.S. is an empire, not a, uh, not a nation, and that that should be in consideration for, for, <laughs> the, for the American conservatives, that, that mm-hmm. if the U.S. is an empire, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, it's, uh, you, you, want, you want to talk about the national interest, but, but there are many bases in, in a lot of parts of the war where there are American soldiers. Uh, what does that serves the national interest and and the connections the U.S. has in the war and and it's and it's very complex to to move from that reality to the other. So mm-hmm. I guess in 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 that degree, the kind of of paleoconservatism that was kind of the of uh, of a different model than that the, the fusionist model had some kind of of internal coherence to a certain degree because the the thing that, that it's true that also polyconservative weren't were not as unified as some people think and you know that there were some some of them were much more libertarian on economics and even on our issues but and there were others that were much more nationalists but but it's still the, the kind of, of, of convergence of, of, of the different uh, people that, that get behind but Buchanan in his brands in the nineties, uh, we're trying to 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 say that 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 foreign policy was one of the keys to 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 restrain the the, the empire and to create a, a nation, and and that nation will become conservative because uh, empires and in the in the analysis that many polyconservative makes, I, I are by nature liberals. Uh, or in, in, in to say in some war liberalism is by nature imperialist, and and mm-hmm. it, it, it's uh, I think that 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 kind of, of 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 discussion is going to start happening because even if Trump is not as 
anti-war as he sounded in the campaign, at least to some, he still has instincts that are quite different than, than the, the status quo in the American right for, for many moments. I mean, he's not as, as anti-war as, as Pat Buchanan or Ron Paul, but it's still he he has some instincts that are much more skeptic of uh, foreign interventionism than the average uh, Republican politician. Sure, yeah. His, it strikes me, uh, you know, as someone observing from a little bit of a, a distance, it strikes me that his um, foreign policy views are, are quite um, reactive. They certainly don't have a they don't have an internationalist project to them. They're they're nationalists, but you know, if the United States is challenged, or if there's you know a front to United States power, or or there's some, or even just something that Trump considers deeply insulting um, or or evil, I suppose. I'm thinking of of an of a chemical attack. I think in Syria, um, he will respond. It's a very kind of personal, almost. Um, almost king-like uh, approach to foreign policy rather than having a strongly defined... It's a very instinctive, I think, foreign policy uh, rather than having a strongly defined um, outlook. Yeah, that, 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 that's, I think, a, a fair description of, of his foreign policy. I think that, that is, it's one of the things that is on, on the discussion, but also the other thing that is on discussion is, is the... Obviously, the economy that we mentioned, and, and, and in that that uh, you mentioned Tucker Carlson, who, who, who has sounded very populist. Uh, other people mentioned Oren Kass, who, who has a book that, that that some have called even quasi-Marxist, uh, and there are others that that are in the conservative movement that are thinking in 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 in, in rethinking the. The, the assumptions of, of, of the mm -hmm. free market conservative alliance that, that, that existed for so long. And in that regard, I, I think the, the, the present of conservatism is, is up for grabs. I think that this is an ideological battle, but it's also mm -hmm. going to be a, a political battle because it's, sure. it's, 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 I think polyconservatism has, is one of those examples that it was, it was an intellectual movement. There were people that, that were deep invested in, in these ideas, but beyond Pat Buchanan, they didn't have necessarily that many politicians that were kind of sympathetic right. to that worldview. Uh, and, and the same thing happens with libertarianism to, to a certain degree. I mean, uh, I mean, there are many people in in the libertarian movement that are. Uh, even register as Republicans and near Republican circles, but still there are very few that have run, and Rumpel is the more successful kind of, of, of example. But one sees, for example, Justin Amash now that, that seems to to be going to be primary because of his uh, comments in favor of impeachment of, of Trump. Uh, and one wonders what is the future going to happen for, for Ron Paul and and even for, for other libertarians who are not necessarily in power, but were considering either um, running open seats and, and issues like that, it, for for the libertarian conservative alliance to, to survive to a certain degree. Uh, 
I, I think that, that it's very interesting because there were days someone was mentioning in foreign policy that, that probably now libertarians will register as a Democrat. And and it's not the first time that someone has suggested that. I mean in the in the two thousands there was uh, in the after the Iraq war there was kind of the liberal the the, the 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 call to make the of libertarians to move to the Democratic Party right to make it more libertarian in a way. But it, it wasn't that large and I think it also stumbled upon the emergence of Ron Paul and, and it, it will sound very weird but Ron Paul got a, a support not only among libertarians but even among the left I mean there were editorials that were very weird uh, the Marxist case for Ron Paul and things like that but but I think that it was kind of his foreign policy that attracted many people that were very different than the Irish uh, Republican uh, primary voter, and 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 I guess that's that's the difference that libertarians could bring to the table. But at the same time, one one sees that that is very difficult. The libertarian ideas are going to have, at least uh, the economic ideas are going to have that much traction in in a context where where it's very difficult. What the the transition is going to be from the the current economic system to to a more to a more digitalized economy to a more technological based economy. Are you there? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I, I did hear you, but I muted you somehow. I, I muted myself somehow. <laughs> um, as, a, as a historian, uh, obviously I think about the past more than I think about the future, but I think there are some um, lessons or some, I guess, models of political realignment we can think about to help us, you know, at least speculate, or maybe not speculate, but but give us ways of thinking about the, this potential realignment process. So one um, one distinction I would draw when thinking about the creation of, of a new alignment or a new um, establishment or a counter-establishment, which is I think what we're talking about here, is there going to be a challenge to the, I guess, the right wing, the American right wing establishment that is based on a combination of social conservatism and libertarian economics in some sort of tense or sometimes tense, sometimes close relationship. And and is that being challenged um, under Trump and in the future? And I think to some extent, yeah, it, it is. Uh, we can look at politicians like Josh Hawley out of uh, Missouri as putting forward a potential post-Trump Republican type party that draws on that sort of populist, almost kind of big government conservative outlook it remains to be seen whether or not that's going to be successful. I think Marco Rubio has also sort of made hints in that direction. Uh, we can also look at the journal American Affairs, which is trying to, you know, famously it made waves as being a pro-Trump journal. It's sort of issued that um, term now, and and but certainly considers itself and puts forward a, uh, puts forward itself as a creative. Um, 
a creative site for post-Trumpian right-wing thought um, that is not nearly as, as free market as its predecessors. But I think we can draw a distinction between um, institutional changes, the institutional creation of a counter-establishment, and the political changes. Um, and I think institutionally, uh, the, the libertarian or the classic fusionist Republican or classic fusionist conservative position remains fairly strong. Um, we have, you still have um, the American Enterprise Institute think tanks like, like that or the Heritage Foundation. You still have donors like the Koch brothers. Um, you still have a, a lot of different pre-existing um, institutional frameworks, think tanks in different states, um, pre-existing uh, political staffers within different um, senators and congressmen's staff who already subscribe to the, the traditional conservative ideology. They are already there. They have um, there's, you know, there are pre-existing networks, there are pre-existing ideas, there's pre-existing legitimized literature, there's, um, and those are all in place shaping um, legislation or shaping um, policy proposals um, and even shaping candidates through, uh, through um, political donations. So I think that the traditional conservative outlook remains institutionally fairly strong and the populists, this potential Trumpy, big government, conservative, right-wing, nationalist, whatever you want to call it, possible alternative, does not yet have the institutional strength to challenge it. It's either going to have to build up its own institution or, uh, or counter-establishment or take over you know, the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute and um, develop its own bevy of of political donors who are willing to finance political campaigns. And that may well happen and it may well be happening, but I think um, at the moment, the, the traditional fusionist Reaganite conservative right remains entrenched and they have to be expelled from power. And certainly, you know, the fact that Donald Trump is president is going to help the formation of a counter-establishment. And if Republican uh, Congress, congressmen and senators continue to fall in line behind him, especially on trade and, and trade war type issues, then perhaps that's going to be a, a major bonus, uh, a major aid to um, the creation of a counter-establishment, then that uh, that could easily shift. But at the moment, I still think the libertarian fusionist position remains institutionally strong. Politically, though, um, like I said, you have Josh Hawley, you have Trump in office, you have you know potentially Mike, uh, Marco Rubio um, sounding more populist notes. And if you know if Trump wins a second term and um, and this type of populist conservatism proves to be a political winner, and there's some evidence that it might be, uh, then you could see a major shift. But that that is going to end up being in tension with. Um, the institutional strength of the fusionist position. Do you see what I mean? Like there's, yeah. Um, yeah, to be, to craft legislation, you need both politics on a, on a lot of issues. You need both politics and institutional strength. You need the type of institutional strength that shapes policymaking, that shapes uh, Supreme Court justice appointments uh, and things like that. And so for me, I still think the the traditional fusionist libertarian position remains strong there. 
but it, it could easily change, but it's going to take a while. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Cook Brothers, and, and one of the things that, that seems interesting of the recent developments is the announce of the Cook Brothers, the um, political arms that is considering endorsing Democrats, and, and not only endorsing mm -hmm. them, but, uh, but the making campaign contributions to... To, to some Democrats that, that are uh, more or less neoliberal, because they sure, yeah. more or less said that, that they are pro-market and at the same time pro-regulation yeah. and pro-trade. And so, so it's going to be interesting, because <laughs> obviously the, the Koch brothers have been from from great part of the liberal and, and, and left uh, Factions in, in American politics, a uh, uh, kind of a dirty war, and and it's going to be funny that that, that some <laughs> Democrats are going to get funding from them. But it's also going to to change the equation. I think that it's very curious. I think one of the issues that that I have been a lot of interest is, is foreign policy, and when a lot of times there is an interview about to someone in in the Cato Institute, the, the team of foreign policy in the Cato Institute. Many of them say that, that that a lot of them, of people, have questions for them because they they can understand why they have a, a vision that is so different that that the, the the visions that are kind of common in the American right, and it's very it's it's understandable because the economic fellows, the free trade fellows, uh, go to Fox News or or to other channels and and say talking points that are not necessarily that different right. from the American Enterprise Institute or the Heritage Foundation. But in foreign policy is where they're pretty distinctive. And I think that is one of the reasons why why I think the Cato Institute at at the at the end of the day has kind of some more respect that that, that other <laughs> uh libertarian institutions because in, in that regard they they seem to be more honest and i think to, to a large degree they, they they kind of are even if i i myself have my disagreements with that or several issues and but i, I think that, that it's really interesting because the, the the kind of of panorama for for the kind of of the future of fusionism is going to be interesting and and also is going to be a very important uh, development. One of the things that, 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 that someone mentioned uh, the other day was that one of the developments that, that has been more uh, clear are the positions toward immigration. So the, 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 the Republican Party had half a rival shift in, in the last years, but, but now it's more evident. And, and that is I mean, I understand the neoconservative position on on on, on, on immigration. That and that's the reason why some of the neo Trump uh, conservatives are relatively, to a certain degree, pro immigration because they, they think yeah. that 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 the, it's about the role of America in the war, and and that also includes uh, accepting people and. And and obviously the libertarians generally are, are, are pro immigration because they, they think it's going to be good for the economy. But social conservatives, that is quite a, a, a complex issue. So uh, some will argue, 
that that particular with the regards of, of refugees, one would have mm -hmm. imagined that some, um, particular the social conservatives that are Christian, will be more sympathetic to their cause. And actually, Vox uh, did a piece about uh, uh, an evangelical conservative who, who directed a, a pro-immigration organization. And, and it was very funny because like people ask why if you're a conservative, you're your pro-immigration and she tried to explain their ideas but, but at least for what the piece in box uh, stays is that um, she didn't have like a, a very support from the conservative movement at large and it's it's kind of of the developments that that either of the fusionist movement is still survives it's going to to adapt because the, the mentality toward immigration has changed a lot and has shifted in a very radical way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the big the big question is how much conservatism is going to lean or the right is going to lean into nationalist politics. Um, I think the, the question of um, immigration has always been sort of tense on the right. It's another one of those issues that where there is maybe an elite versus popular divide where, you know, the Wall Street Journal and, um, as you were saying before, libertarian intellectuals and uh, neoconservatives came down on a, essentially a, a dovish immigration policy or, or close to open border type policy. Um, but I don't think that's always... Um, sat well with right-wing voters uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them is just a general, I think, distrust of change or fear of change or fear of of um, society being being transformed. I think there's a there probably is a racial component to that. This I idea that um, the United States that you know conservatism is in many ways a nostalgic exercise, and the idea that the nation or the society or the town that they grew up with, which in many cases is going to have been a white or in some ways a segregated uh, society or town in which the place that the Republican voters or the conservative voters would have been essentially a, a white place is going to change its its complexion. There's a concern that, um, you know, there's this, this fear that the Democratic Party or the liberals are essentially importing voters. Uh, there's, I think, especially when we're talking about refugees, there can be a, an Islamophobic or uh, component to it. So um, I think there's always been that divide between um, conservative, elite conservatives and pop and the, the voters. And I think that came through very, very strongly in the 2016 election. Um, what that is going to look like in the future is, is going to be hard to say. But I think... Um, I'm somewhat, I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that um, the the white portion of the the vote, the electoral vote, is going to continue to decrease unless, um, and, and the Republican Party is going to suffer unless they can expand beyond what is, in many ways, a white identity politics. There was a there was an effort, you know, especially after. Um, 2012 uh, to try and expand the Republican Party into um, by making appeals to the to Latino voters who were you know 
quote unquote natural conservatives because they believe in you know religious values and strong families and so on. So there was this idea that that there might be a way of expanding um, the Republican Party through uh, Lat- outreach to Latinos, and even before that, uh, George W. Bush was fairly successful at winning Latino voters, but um, there's been a whiplash against that, uh, and and I think it may be it may be difficult for the Republican Party to remain competitive on a national level if they continue down this nativist path. path. Yeah, that's that's a, an interesting reflection. I think we will leave it here. It has been a um, a pleasure, really, talk to you. Uh, a very deep conversation about a, a, a very interesting topic like American conservatism. So, thanks, Yosho. And where do people can find what you? Your, oh yeah, thank your, you. you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Joshua underscore A underscore Tate, that's T-A-I-T, and I write regularly for Arc Digital. So um, if you follow my Twitter account, you can see my regular pieces there where I write about um, conservatism, politics, uh, religion, even art a little bit. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for having me, Camilo. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Take care.